Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 22, and it's verses 1 to 38 that we're going to read. If you have a Bible, uh, I'd encourage you to turn to Luke 22. You can follow along. If you'd like to use one of the blue Bibles that are in the chair racks, then uh, you can find Luke chapter 22 beginning on page 1121, 1,121. Now, like the last few weeks, what I'm going to do this morning is combine a number of sections that sometimes are treated separately as people preach through this uh, section of Luke. But my goal is to actually see how these passages fit together uh, in the story that Luke is telling. And that is true this morning as well as it's been the last couple weeks. Now, like last week, because of the length of the passage that I'm going to read, I'm not going to ask you to stand as I read it. But I do ask you, and I would want you to give due respect to this while I'm reading because this is God's Word. In fact, you'll know that I'm done reading when I say and make the declaration that this is the Word of the Lord. It's a reminder that what we're reading here is God's Word for us, and it deserves attention and respect. And when I say that at the end, I'll invite you to respond and to say thanks be to God. So this is Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 38. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, that is, Jesus, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is not the one who reclines at table? 
but I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. This is the word of the Lord. Now, there was, a, there was an old TV show back in the mid-1980s where the heroes would, um, would come to the aid of someone who was in some kind of desperate situation or in some kind of desperate need. And usually, the, uh, the, the, this team, they would figure out a very elaborate, detailed plan of how the, uh, how the rescue would happen or how the situation would be resolved. Very careful, methodical planning that the team would then execute. And everything would go, you know, usually according to design. And the leader would sit back with his cigar and he would smirk and smile and, said, and say, I just love it when a plan comes together. Now, that's what's starting to happen here. The 24-hour period into which we're now entering in Luke's story, without exaggeration, is the most consequential day in the history of the world. And it had been planned, not just for months, not even for years, but before creation itself. And all of human history had been the careful arranging of the pieces so that now, at just the right time, the dominoes would fall and everything would come together in just the right way. And the day started with dinner. And that's what ties these 38 verses that we just read together to get together. This, this dinner with Jesus. Three headings uh, as the narrative unfolds, right? First you have the preparations for dinner, what kind of leads up to it. You have the dinner itself and understanding what that means, understanding the dinner. And then finally, some lessons from the dinner. Right, let's start with the preparations. Heading number one, preparing for dinner. It was a busy day in Jerusalem for everyone. It's the day before the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And, 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 and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread was a seven-day feast from the 15th to the 21st of the, the month of Nisan. It kicked off the Passover meal kicked off with the Passover meal on the very first evening of the feast. Right? Remember, according to the Jewish custom, the day started after sundown, right? So the first day, the 15th, would be starting with, the, was starting with sundown, right? You'd have during the daylight hours would be the 14th sundown, and you would start the, start the 15th. And so that day would start that evening, and the whole city would have been getting ready, and it would have been very, very busy. The population of Jerusalem would grow by multiples and multiples of its normal size during the Passover time, 
right? Everyone would kind of come in. They would sort of make pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem. It was actually a legal requirement if you lived within a certain number of miles of the city to celebrate it in the city of of Jerusalem. I mean, everyone was coming into town, and there was just kind of a buzz of of preparation. This is not how it was all year round. I mean, think like, you know, Manasquan on July 3rd. I mean, everyone's just like, where'd all these people come from? They're just here, right? It would have been a busy time of preparation for everyone. But it would have been especially, and it was especially busy for the main characters of Luke's narrative. Now, first you have the chief priests and the scribes. They were busy. They were looking to prepare for something. Now, they've had it out for Jesus for a while, both here in, chapter, in verse 2, but also back in chapter 20, right? You, you begin to see how they have been out for Jesus. You'd also see, though, that they had this, this thing that was holding them back. They had this fear of the crowds, Because while they were not too fond of what Jesus was doing, part of what they were not so fond about was that the crowds seemed to like him. They seemed to be for him. And they had a fear of inciting some sort of popular uprising if they took some sort of action against Jesus. It might cause a disturbance, which would have been neither good for themselves as it comes to them in the eyes of the people, nor good for themselves as it comes to how they were perceived in the eyes of the Romans. He didn't want a disturbance. So the chief priests and the scribes, they had a desire for what they wanted to do, but what they didn't really have was a plan until Judas comes along. This is verses 3 to 6, right? Now, we know who Judas Judas was. He was one of of the 12 disciples. But it says that Judas went away and conferred with the chief priests and the scribes, right? He conferred with them. They made a plan, right? This is what the Jewish leaders have been looking for. Perfect timing. Judas would lead them, would lead them to Jesus, but they would do it by, by doing it at a time when Jesus was away from the crowds. Right? And they would and they would pay him for this. That's how it would work. That was the plan. Right? You tell us where he is away from the crowds and we'll pay you. That was the deal. It was the plan. And it was gonna happen later that night. Right? So there's planning going on there. Now, meanwhile, Jesus is doing his own planning. Look at verses 7 to 13. It wasn't as if Jesus was unaware or oblivious of the planning that was going on about him, about, from those who were out to get him. He knew about that. In fact, his planning seems to take that into account. It's almost kind of clandestine, right? almost like a spy movie if you really kind of look at what, what Jesus did. He goes to Peter and John, two of his closest and his most trusted disciples, and he says in verse 8, Go and prepare the Passover that we may eat it. And this was a pretty elaborate process. This was, a, this was not, no small task that he was asking them to do. Right? The lamb had to be sacrificed that day in the temple, brought home to be prepared as part of the, the meal. It was the main course, but there was lots of other side dishes that need to be made. Plus, you needed a place to, to have it. They were in Jerusalem. You needed to have a, a room where it could be prepared. You had work to do to prepare it. Then you needed to be able to eat it. All of this, very, very important. And remember, James and John, they're not natives of Jerusalem. They wouldn't have known where to go. It would be like saying to me, like, Tom, why don't you go into, uh, go into New York and plan a big dinner, a uh, party of 13, uh, find us a place, a private room where nobody's going to ask any questions. And I'd be like, well, I mean, okay, I mean, I visited New York a, a couple of times, but I mean, if I'm going to find a place like this, I'm going to need to ask around. I'm going to need to talk to some, some people. But Jesus didn't want any questions. All right, so what do they do? Right, no big deal. Jesus has got a guy. He's got it all figured out. He's got a guy. He tells James and John, you're going to go into the city and you're going to see a guy carrying a jar of water. And it actually matters that it's a guy. Right? That was the sign, actually. Because normally it wouldn't be the guys who were carrying the jars of water. It would be the, be the woman. So that was the plan. That was the, that was the secret sign. Jesus had it all worked out. 
you'll see a guy with a jar of water and he'll lead you to a house. And the guy there, when you say this certain, this certain thing to him, he'll take you to the room where it's all set up. It's all planned. And verse 13, go figure. They went and they found it just as they had told them. Exactly according to plan. Don't you love it when a plan comes together? Now here's the takeaway from this. From this, the, all this, this preparing for the meal. Right? You see how Jesus is in complete control? He's not, he, he's not like blissfully unaware of what's coming, of those who are plotting against him. He's not, he's not naive. He's not displaying some sort of unrealistic positivity like, you know what, like, I'm sure it'll all just work out and it won't be really bad and I'll be fine. And, like, he, knows, he knows what's going to happen and he knows exactly what he's doing. And the disciples don't seem to know all the background that's swirling around them at the time. I mean, they know that Jesus isn't liked by the leaders. And they, and they, and they know that the people have tried to take action against him before. But they don't know the, the details about Judas and the, and the plan and the conspiracy. Right? That shows up later. They have no idea that Judas would be, the, would be the one to do something like this. And if they did, if they knew all the details, if they knew about all the planning, the stuff that was going on behind the scenes, they'd probably be panicking. But they don't need to be because Jesus was, would just like wink at them and said, look, you don't need to know all the details, right? Stuff, stuff might start happening in just a little while that seems literally like all hell is breaking loose. But I got this. I'm in control and I got a plan. Now, here's where this matters for us because we live in a broken, bad, painful world. And Satan is scheming and bad people are making plans. And for the most part, we don't know the details. We don't always know what's coming, right? The diagnosis that we might get this week, how the geological plates are shifting underneath us right now, we don't know, right? Who might walk into a, onto a college campus or into a shopping center with the intent to do harm? We don't know. But what we do know in verses 7 to 13 is that Jesus is winking at us and saying, don't worry, just do what's next. I'm in control and I've got a plan. That's heading number one, preparing for dinner. Now, heading number two, understanding dinner. Okay, preparation time is over. Verse 14, when the hour came. Now, most immediately, in a very narrow sense, the hour is the dinner hour, right? It's very simple. It's now time to eat right? Dinner time. Sun is down. It's now Nisan the 15th. Jesus is calling everyone to the table. Dinner time. But in a broader sense, this term, the hour, is very much, very much in view as a broader kind of concept here as well. Jesus' hour throughout the Gospels refers to his time, the appointed moment of his suffering, death, and resurrection. And that hour is now here. All of human history has been leading to this day. Now, there's some very familiar words here. We're not celebrating the Lord's Supper this week. It's just the way the preaching schedule kind of worked out. But every time we do that, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we review this event, this dinner. And there's actually great comfort, I, I, I think, in the, in the consistency, in the familiarity of the, of the ceremony and the ritual in, in, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's intentionally familiar in a sense because it is, it's something that we need repeatedly so that it sinks deep into our, into our minds and our, and, our, and our hearts. 
But if we aren't careful, as with any familiar thing, we can forget the larger context of what's happening here. And that's what Jesus is doing at this Passover meal. He's, he's explaining to them how they ought to understand what they're doing and what's going to happen. Because what he was doing with this Passover meal was a very radical thing. Right? He was saying things that weren't typically said at Passover meals because he wanted to, them to understand what that Passover meal was pointing to. What this dinner was really about. So to understand what makes this dinner here, what Jesus was doing, what, to understand what makes it so radical, you have to first go back and remember what the Passover is all about to begin with. Right? It was a feast that the Lord had told the people of Israel to celebrate every year to remember their deliverance out of slavery in Egypt. Right? The word Passover comes from the fact that the final plague that God sent on the Egyptians for refusing to let his people go, for refusing to acknowledge him as God, the final plague that he sent was the, was the sending of an angel to kill the firstborn of every household. And this killing of the firstborn in every household would have happened in every home, Israelite and Egyptian, except God told the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb and to spread that lamb's blood across the door. And the angel, when he saw that blood, he would pass over that house, sparing that home from judgment. The Passover meal. Now, the bigger feast, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is sometimes used interchangeably with the, with the Passover feast, although the, the, the Passover feast was, you know, in a technical sense, kind of that first night, and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread was the, the seven weeks, but there's some kind of, there's sometimes, sometimes used interchangeably in the, in the Gospels. But the Unleavened Bread, what's that about? Well, they called it that because, because once Pharaoh let them go, they had to leave in such a hurry that the dough that had been set out to rise didn't have time to rise. They had to bake the... Bake the bread without the effect of the yeast, without the effect of the, of the leaven, right? the feast of the unleavened bread. And so over the years, this is how the ceremony evolved. It was refined. It was made very specific, what types of food they were to eat, how they were to be prepared, the order that they were to be eaten in, the things that were to be said as they were eaten, very ceremonial. And that's what's happening in all the homes of Israel, throughout the city of Jerusalem, all over the land that night. And that's the context of the dinner that Jesus is eating with his disciples. But Jesus is doing something a little bit different. When he says that the bread is his body, when he says that the cup is his blood, he's drawing a very clear connection about what's happening there at that meal with what's about to happen to him. And I want you to see this. Hey kids, did you know, kids, did you know that at the Passover meal, the youngest child had a very important job. The youngest child at the Passover meal had a very important job. They weren't asked to go to the kids' table in the other room. Right? They didn't go like downstairs to junior Passover right, while this was, was happening. Right? They were all together. And the youngest child is supposed to ask the host of the dinner a critical question. The question is, why is this night different from all other nights? And there were several, there were several prescribed answers that were to be given to that question that were to be, to be read. And it's the tradition of the, the Passover meal. And they'd go through the different dishes that were prepared and they would explain the meaning of each of the things about why this night was different than any other night. And from the unleavened bread to the bitter herbs to the salty water, they would all point in some way to the suffering that the people of Israel had endured. 
And through the tragedy and through the persecution and the genocide, this has been a characteristic of the Jewish people throughout the years, from Egypt until the present day. And it is important to remember tragedy and, and suffering. Right? We do that throughout the country, like this country, especially in this area. If you went up to anyone, like if I, especially if I, were to go into, if I were to go into lower Manhattan and I just went up to someone, anyone I passed on the street, and I were to say, never forget, right? What would come into their mind immediately? 9-11, right? They would know instantly that that's what I was referring to. A shared moment of national suffering, right? And Jesus is definitely saying that we need to remember something. Do this in remembrance of me. But what's fascinating is, what is he telling his disciples to remember? Right? See how he takes the elements of the meal and how he gives them new meaning. He takes the bread and he says, see this bread? This is my body. And he takes the cup and he says, see this wine? This is my blood. And in doing that, He's not, unlike most of the elements of the traditional Passover meal, which pointed to the suffering of the people, in this case, he's now not asking them to look at their own suffering. He's asking them to see this meal as a pointer to his suffering. Because ultimately, as much as it may be important for us to remember our suffering, our suffering is not what's going to get us out of the mess of this world. Jesus is transitioning, transforming the meal and the focus from our suffering to his because it's in his suffering that there's real hope. Now, I know I've made reference to this before, but there's a very obvious omission, right, from every account of this Passover meal in the Gospels. There's no lamb mentioned. Now, it's possible there could have still been a lamb there, but even if it was, it's striking. Jesus doesn't comment on it. There's no mention of him serving the sacrificial lamb to them, like on a plate or something. Why not? Because Jesus was going to be that sacrificial lamb, the ultimate lamb whose spilled blood would save them and us from judgment and death when we figuratively spread it over the doorposts of our lives. Have you ever wondered, think about this, and kids, I think, think about this too. Have you ever wondered why God had them kill a lamb. Seriously, why a lamb? I mean, it almost seems, almost seems wrong. Why an animal that's like soft and, and cute? Why a petting zoo animal? I mean, there's different kinds of animals. This is a petting zoo animal. Why, why not, like I heard one pastor say, like, why not a wild boar or something? Something dangerous, something fierce, something that like, you might want to kill. Or, or like I think of like a hyena, right? In The Lion King, when they had to pick an animal to be the villain, right? To be like the group of villains. Right? They picked the hyenas, right? They're scavengers. They seem mean. Like, why not that? Why a lamb? Bothers us because a lamb seems innocent. Killing seems un unjust. Seems wrong. It would make the kids cry. They take the lamb from the house to sacrifice it. And that's the point. It should. Does it trouble you that the perfectly innocent son of God was killed when he didn't deserve it? That the one who actually came to bring healing and came with compassion for suffering is the one who ends up suffering? Does it seem wrong? It should. It is. But that's exactly what we need. Because there is no other alternative if we are to live than for Jesus, the Lamb of God, to die. 
and we should never forget it. Phil Riken tells the story. He's not the first to tell it. There's lots of versions of it that kind of float around there. It may actually be one of those urban legends or as preachers call it, a pious myth. But nonetheless, it goes like this. Shortly after the American Civil War, a farmer was kneeling next to a graveside in Nashville, Tennessee. And someone passing by came up to him and saw him and wanted to express some degree of sympathy with him and asked him, is that the grave of your son? And the farmer replied, no. He said, I have seven children actually, all of them young on a poor farm back in Illinois. And the man looked at him and said, well, why are you, why are you here then? And he said, well, he said, I was drafted into the Union Army, and despite the fact that it would have been a great hardship to my family if I had been taken, certainly if I had been killed, I was required by law to, to serve. But on the morning where I was to, to depart, when my regiment was commanded to report, my neighbor's oldest son came over and volunteered, offered to take my place in the war, and they allowed that kind of thing to, to happen. And the man looked up at the bystander and said, the man that's in this grave was that boy. It wasn't him in the grave. It wasn't his son. It was someone else's son. And as the farmer stepped away from the graveside, the bystander was able to see what that farmer had scratched into the gravestone. Four simple words. He died for me. What makes this night, when this dinner happened, different from all other nights? Child asks at the Passover dinner. What? What is it? It's that on this night, the Son of God willingly surrendered his body as a sacrifice for us. That's what Jesus was telling his disciples. That's how we understand this dinner. Now, last heading and pulling all of this together, everything that's recorded from verse 21 to verse 38, these are the lessons from the dinner. This is what happened immediately following, which I think provide us with some, some, some ways to think about how we apply the understanding that we have of what Jesus was saying. Now, admittedly, as I go through this, I'm going to have to leave a lot out. There's a lot that's going to be left on the desk here. But I want you to see how all these things fit together, the various reactions, the various lessons from the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. The first lesson, I think very clearly, is to stay humble. And that ties together three things, really. The betrayal by Judas, the denial by Peter, and, and, the, and the bickering of the disciples. All right, look at Judas. Jesus finishes the dinner, and he makes the comment in verse 21 that there's someone there at the table with him who's going to betray him. And, of course, he's talking about Judas. We already know he's talking about Judas because we saw the plan, right? We know what Judas's plans are for later in the evening. But the humbling thing in verse 23, when it says that Jesus makes the statement is, it doesn't, seem to be aware, it doesn't seem to be something that anyone else knows. They're all wondering who it is. Which means what? It means that Judas was not walking around with a t-shirt that said, I'm the traitor. It means that you wouldn't have picked him out. It means that he had gone through the Jesus discipleship motions as well as anyone else in the group. And it was obvious to no one what the condition of his heart was. You couldn't tell from the outside. And then you skip down to Peter at verses 31 to 34, right? Peter, might, he might not have known who was going to betray Jesus, but he knew who it wasn't. It wasn't me. It's not me. Jesus says that 
Satan was out to get all the disciples, but Jesus was protecting them, and he specifically prays that Peter wouldn't fall. But Peter, he just presses on. Verse 33, you've got that right, Jesus. I'm not going to fall. I'm with you all the way. Arrest, death, you can count on me. I'm there. And we'll talk more about what happens to Peter ultimately at the end of chapter 22. But Jesus tells Peter, no, before the end of the day, you're going to fall and you're going to deny me three times. Now that's humbling. To walk away from your arrogant estimations of how much you'll do for Jesus. Now the most obvious lesson though about staying humble is what Jesus specifically says in verses 25 to 29. This would almost be comical if it weren't so frustrating. Jesus had just had this really touching moment. Right, where like well, you'd think he'd kind of walk away and say, like, good talk. I think we got through here. I think everyone gets it. I'm gonna die. Really emotionally, he gives this really serious, sober warning about, about someone gonna betray him. And it seems as if, as if everyone at that moment ought to just be really convicted, really emotional. They ought to be looking at themselves, feeling the profound meaning of what he said and, and examining themselves as to whether they could be that person. And then, almost like immediately, they're arguing about which one's the greatest. It's like, really? Really? Have you forgotten what we just said? What we were just talking about? The guy who is truly the greatest is standing in front of them And telling them about how he's going to give his life for them. And they go right to arguing about which one should be getting their jacket embroidered with the goat on the side. That's where they go. And if I were Jesus, I probably would have just lost my mind, blown a cog. Which is why I'm not a very good parent sometimes. Right? Because Jesus, like, he doesn't seem shocked by this. But neither does he fail to correct them. He proceeds to explain that actually the one who serves is truly the greatest. Lots of applications there. You can take this in lots of personal directions and let this land and the shoe fit where it, where it might. But there are no lowly jobs in the church. In fact, it's the servant jobs that are often the most important. The ones that keep you closest to Jesus. So that's the first lesson from the dinner. Stay humble. Now the second lesson, prepare for mission. This is where we ended our reading, verses 35 to 38. Jesus is prepping his disciples for the post-resurrection mission. And he's, he's saying, it's going to be hard out there. He tells them, look, when I sent you out before, while I was still here, that was a training mission. Right? But this is not a drill anymore. Right? This is live fire. Now it gets real. That's his point in verse 36. Right? Take the money brag. Bring the supplies. Get prepared for spiritual battle. Now he warns them and he mentally prepares them. But note that he does not give them an option of staying. It's going to be hard. You need to prepare yourself. But you need to go. Now that's our tendency, isn't it? To want to, to, want to, to seek the option, to look for the option of kind of staying. Can't we just stay here in the upper room, Jesus? I mean, it's kind of comfy here. Cushions, food. Right? Or we make it sound spiritual. Right? They could have done that. Look, Jesus, I understand that there's a mission field out there and that there are people who need to hear about you. But frankly, as I think we've just shown here and as you've just demonstrated, there seems to be a lack of maturity still here among us. 
So perhaps maybe we should just, I don't know, stay here, do a little maturing first, maybe host some conferences, bring in a speaker or two, right? No need to go out maybe quite yet where it's so dangerous. And Jesus says, get out. You'll learn while you're going. Now, don't get me wrong, right? There's a place for regularly returning to the upper room, if you will, for the, for the Christian, right? There's a place for continuing education. That's why we think you should be in Sunday school every week, right? right? There's a place for Christian community to strengthen you, to encourage you, right? That's why we encourage you to find some sort of small group of relationships where people can be praying for you and holding you accountable. There's a place for gathering with God's people in his presence to worship. That's why we come together and we think it's so important to be here in this place, in this hour, every week. Right? That's built into what Jesus is saying when he commands his disciples to regularly celebrate this meal and do it in remembrance of him. He says there is a place for coming back together to do that, to remember, to encourage, to strengthen. But that, right, the things that you do when you come in, is for the purpose of you being able to be strong enough to go out. Because you don't stay here. And the upper room is not an escape from the world. It's a refueling station for the race. It's a supply depot for the battle. It's so you can repack your knapsack. It's so you can remember the gospel so that you can then tell the gospel. And the message of this night, this telling, this gospel is exactly what the world needs. On Friday in the weekly Calvary Connections email that we send out on Friday mornings. By the way, if you're not on that list and you want to be, just email the office. It's in the bulletin. Get on that list. But we included a link this past week that showed a video to um, some of the earthquake devastation in Turkey and Syria. And there were many striking and just absolutely heart-rending images that were in, the, in that video. But the one that struck me the most, I don't know why, maybe because I'd never really seen it exactly like this before, but the image that struck me the most was a very short clip uh, towards the end of the video of a rescue worker, a close-up of his face, and he's lying on a pile of rubble, and he sticks his face into the crack of the debris, and he screams into it. And then he puts his ear to the crack to hear if someone might have heard him. And it just struck me. Those piles of rubble, they are not safe places. It's safer at home. Right? Why would anyone crawl onto one? Because they hope that they might be able to be an instrument of rescue in a pile of destruction. And they're willing to risk their safety and their comfort to shout into the rubble. The message of the Lord's table of this meal needs to be shared because it shouts into the rubble of this world. It shouts a message of an ultimate lamb who was willing to be sacrificed so that we could be saved. For one who was willing to die so that we could live. Of one who was willing to be buried so that we could rise. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this meal, for what it says to us about who you are and what you've done. 
And Lord, let it strengthen us. Let it be sustenance to our spiritual soul that encourages us to take this into a dangerous world where supplies and weapons of the Spirit are necessary. Lord, allow us to be your ambassadors, to carry your message, and to shout into the brokenness the hope that comes through Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.